Before we uh, continue our series in doubt, uh, let me uh, pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is powerful to save us and who has saved us through this powerful event of his death and resurrection. As we reflect on uh, and continue to reflect together on the nature of doubt and uh, indeed remedies to doubt this week, we pray that uh, we would encourage, be encouraged to continue to trust Jesus more, especially where at times we may be tempted to waver. We ask this all in the name of our Lord and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were with us last week, uh, we started off by trying to get a framework to understand doubt. Uh, if you recall, we saw that uh, doubt is quite nuanced. There are different types of doubt. In fact, we boiled it down to three different types, uh, and we're going to focus on two of them this week. Uh, we saw last week that uh, the first type of doubt was philosophical. Uh, it's asking that very broad question, is Christianity true? Uh, the second time of doubt is what was called doctrinal doubt. Uh, so we don't doubt that Christianity is true, but then we say, do I correctly understand the truth? Do I understand the gospel? Doctrinal doubt. And then the third form of doubt we teased out was personal doubt. Uh, is it true for me? So we saw the three types of doubt. We also thought about, uh, is doubt always a sin? And we saw that uh, in relation to philosophical and doctrinal doubt, uh, it can actually be a positive force for good. Uh, when we doubt, uh, is Christianity true, uh, or do I correctly understand the truth, when we have those questions, a good response to them is to say, well, I want to dig deeper, I want to find answers to those, those questions and those doubts, and it can lead to us having a more firmly grounded faith. And so that is the positive effect of doubt if we respond to it appropriately. When we say, I'm not going to remain in this situation of doubt, I'm going to dig down and find answers. Uh, we considered whether doubt was a sin in relation to uh, personal doubt. And we saw that in terms of personal doubt, we're saying, is it true for me? Um, it is sinful where we fail to trust God's word and his promises. So where we are doubting... Uh, is God really going to, to save me? Uh, is he going to care for me in this situation? If we're actually failing to trust what God has already said, his promises and his word, then that is sinful and we need to acknowledge that to God. I'm sorry, I've doubted you. Please forgive me. But we also saw that uh, in relation to personal doubt, there are times when um, it is just due to our human frailty. Uh, we may be physically ill, mentally ill, uh, exhausted, and there are times like that when we doubt. And that in itself uh, does not mean that doubt is sinful as such. It's just a product of our human frailty. The final thing we saw last week was also the danger of uh, doubt morphing into cynical unbelief. So we have these initial doubts, but it comes a, there's a danger that our hearts may get to the point where they harden and we no longer seek the truth or we no longer repent of our our doubts where they're sinful. And so there was that caution to look at our hearts and to be careful that they don't morph into cynical, unbelieving hearts. So that was a brief uh, recap of where we were last week. Uh, now, this week, uh, we're moving on from what we looked at last week, understanding doubt, to uh, thinking now about remedies for doubt. And indeed, we'll do that both this week 
and not next week because it's the baptism, but the week after that, our third in the series in two weeks' time. So today we're going to think about remedies for the first two types of doubt, philosophical and doctrinal, and then in two weeks' time, after the baptism, we'll think about remedies for personal doubt. That's where we're going. So, uh, firstly, let's think a little more then about philosophical doubt. This question, uh, is Christianity true? And indeed, a remedy for that. There was a a scripture class once where the teacher asked the kids, uh, what is Christian faith? And immediately one hand shot up and he said, yes, what is it, Charlie? And he said, Sir, Christian faith is trying to believe what you know ain't true. There we go. A childlike perspective on Christian faith. Trying to believe what you know ain't true. In other words, you're trying to do some mental gymnastics to get to the point where you, you believe it, even though in the heart of hearts you know it's a load of bunkum. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, our popular atheistic writer, has said this. And this is uh, the same sentiment expressed a little more sophisticatedly. Uh, Christian faith, or faith is a persistent false belief held in the faith, the face of strong contradictory evidence. There it is again. A persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. You see what he's saying? We're believing something, uh, we know it's false. Uh, We hold to it doggedly, we're persistent, uh, but we know that all the evidence points against it being true. And so in some way we've got to try and leave our brain in a box and just try and screw our eyes up and believe it's true even though we know in a heart of hearts it isn't. So the question is this, uh, what is Christian faith? Uh, Is it, as the, the kid in scripture class said, trying to believe what you know ain't true? Uh, And does it indeed, does it need us to deny reality? Do we need to ignore the strong contradictory evidence? Because according to Richard Dawkins, uh, he is saying Christian faith is blind faith. Christian faith is a leap in the dark. And as far as Dawkins is concerned, uh, religious people, uh, they're dishonest, they're liars, they're fools, and they're incapable of responding honestly to the real world, in his view. However, when we actually see what the true definition of Christian faith is, we see that Richard Dawkins and indeed that child in the scripture class are totally and utterly wrong. Uh, For Dawkins, his definition suits his purposes because, of course, he wants to rubbish uh, religion and Christianity But actually, his definition of faith bears no relation to what the Bible says that faith actually is. The definition of faith which I'm going to put to you that the Bible offers us is this. Christian faith is a reasoned trust in Jesus Christ based on a conviction of the truth. Christian faith is a reasoned trust in Christ based on a conviction that it's true. Let's tease that out. Um, Christian faith has an object, in other words, a focus of its trust, and that object is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Uh, 
Peter says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is the gospel. There is the message that's declared. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. We put our faith in him. Christian faith, therefore, is a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's based on two things. Uh, Firstly, him being who he claims to be, uh, the powerful God, and him being able to do what he claims he can do, uh, forgive our sins, reconcile us to God. So Christianity actually invites the question, who is Jesus? Uh, Christianity invites the question, is Jesus, this man who existed in human history, is he worthy of your faith and your trust? When you read the New Testament documents, uh, the writers are at pains to give the readers, you and me, plenty of reasons to know that it is a perfectly sound and evidentially based decision to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, repeatedly they, re- they present uh, eyewitness accounts of what has happened and they're giving people who weren't there data to be able to make up their own minds that Jesus is who he claims to be and that what actually is said about him that he died and that he was raised back to life actually happened and therefore that he is a worthy object of our faith. We can put our faith and trust in him. So far from being a belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence, Christianity says the opposite. It says, no, faith is a belief based in the evidence. And it says, examine it. Look at it for yourself. Uh, This year we're going to be looking uh, and studying John's gospel together. And we get the purpose that John's gospel was written stated at the very end in chapter 20, verse 31. This is why John wrote his gospel, for you and for me. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written. He's recounting everything he's recorded in his gospel, including not just the teaching of Christ, but the miraculous events which point to his power as the Son of God. These are written that you may believe These are recorded for you so that you may examine them and that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised King, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life, that you will never perish in his name. And in the New Testament documents, we have, if you like, a passing on of eyewitness testimony from the people who were there to the people who weren't there. And that was coming out in our reading today in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Verse 3, the Apostle Paul says to them, uh, to these Christians, For what I I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he goes on to define what he's passed on. For Christ died for our sins, etc., etc. But do you see, what he received, he passed on. Christianity hinges on its beliefs about Jesus being true. 
Uh, Christianity is grounded in historical events, and in particular, Christ's death and his resurrection. And the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is actually this historical event, but also then explained as to its significance. So we see uh, in this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Uh, there we have the event, the statement of the event, Christ died. And 2,000 and just under, over to, under 2,000 years ago, Christ died on the cross. It was a real historical event. But the question is, why did he die? Uh, was it primarily an example for us to follow? Uh, of course, Christ's death on the cross is an example for believers to follow. We have to take up our cross every day and follow him, uh, die to self. But is that the primary reason that Christ died? Uh, scripture leaves us in no doubt as to how we should interpret this event. And we see it here again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Christ died for our sins. So there's the event, Christ died, but there is the explanation. So we're left in no doubt as to its significance for our sins. It's all to do with the atonement. His death is to bring us cleansing. He is a substitute who takes our place. So, that is the gospel. It's a historical event coupled with an explanation which leaves us in no doubt as to its significance. And the Apostle Paul, he recognized how critical the event of Jesus' resurrection was. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is written to these Christians in Corinth and they were struggling with doubts. Uh, their doubts, it is evident from chapter 15, is that they were saying people just do not do not rise again from the dead. There is no resurrection of the dead. There will be no resurrection of the dead in the future. They were doubting that what Christianity said would be true. And Paul is saying, actually, if you say there's no resurrection of the dead in the future, you're actually saying there has been no resurrection of the dead of Christ in the past. And once you reject that, then everything starts to unravel. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You see, once they start to pick at the threads of what they believe, there's no future resurrection of the body. That means you're denying there has already been a, few, a, a past resurrection of Christ. And once you do that, well, why on earth are you here today? This preaching is useless. I'm talking nothing more than hot air. And so is your faith. It is useless if Christ has not been raised. I remember as a teenager hearing Cliff Richard, um, uh, a very public Christian figure, uh, saying, and I'm not quoting me exactly on this, but he said something to the effect of, um, if Christianity, at the end of my life, I find Christianity isn't true, then it won't, be, it won't devastate me because it's motivating me to lead a good life. You know, it's been a force for good in my life. I can see a few of you grimacing at that, uh, and rightly so, uh, because, yes, if Christianity is not true, it is the most devastating news we can ever receive at the end of our life. We have believed in vain, and our faith has been futile. And all the hope we have, which our faith brings of life beyond this life and heaven, 
and a new creation, it's all been nothing more than a cruel joke. And we see that in uh, verses 17 to 19. Uh, the Apostle Paul lays it out very clearly. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. There it is. He's saying, if Christ has not been raised, all the hope you have, it is a cruel deception. And you are to be pitied more than all men and women. Uh, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, your loved ones in Christ, who you're hoping to see again, you're not going to see them again. They are lost. And if our hope is only for this life and it's nothing more, we have been grievously and evilly deceived. So, the Apostle Paul says, no, if Christ has not been raised, that is the greatest, most evil deception of all, and we have been most grievously deceived if we believe it and it's not true. But in this chapter 15, he actually lays out the reasons for it being true. And one of them are the eyewitness testimonies. He presents the data. Uh, he calls, if you like, to the stand those who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he lists them so that those who won't, weren't there can be sure that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. Verses 5 to 8, uh, Paul says this, The risen Christ appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, in other words, died. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. What a witness stand to call uh, to the people he was writing to at the time. He's saying, look, the risen Lord Jesus even appeared to 500 people at the same time. Many of them are still alive at that point. You can go and speak to them. This is incontrovertible evidence. This is not something that's been cooked up by just a few. Jesus, the risen Jesus, was seen by many different people at many different times, and therefore we can know for certain that not only did he die, but he, rise, he rose again from the dead. So that is the basis for Christian faith. It's based on historical events that are supported by eyewitness testimony. And so for those who are exploring Christian faith, or indeed digging down deeper on our Christian faith, there is this wonderful journey we each have then of investigating the evidence, asking these questions, these vital questions. Uh, was Jesus a real person in human history? Uh, yes, there is no doubt of that, and there are non-Christian historians who attest to uh, aspects of Jesus' life and his death and what people believed about him. Another question we ask on our faith of our journey of investigation. Uh, did he really die and rise again? Again, we are invited to look into the evidence, and there is plenty of evidence for that. Uh, the most powerful evidence for the reality of the resurrection is the impact of the early church on the Roman Empire and the world. These people transformed an empire and a world with this message of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and they were prepared to die for that message. You don't die for something which you've made up. 
You don't die for a deception which you know in your heart isn't true. They knew beyond any doubt it was true. And they were prepared to die for it. And it changed the world. Another question we ask on this journey of our Christian lives. Uh, Does the gospel evidence support Jesus' claim to be the Son of God? A great question. Another question. Is the Bible, are the New Testament accounts reliable? How do we know that what's recorded there is trustworthy? These are all great questions to ask. And there are good answers for them. And indeed, I'd refer you to some of the resources I've put on the back of the handout. So, the point is this. Wherever you are in your faith journey, keep asking questions. Because that is a very, very healthy thing to do as Christians. To be digging down and seeking to understand and to have a surer basis for our faith, looking into the evidence. So what we're seeing is this. Christian faith, it's not divorced from reason. It's not trying to believe that something you know ain't true. You don't have to leave your brain in a box. Christian faith actually involves you looking at the evidence and making a judgment for yourself. And therefore, what we see is this. Uh, reason accompanies faith. Reason accompanies faith. Uh, reason guards against a misplaced faith. Because caring about truth is very important. Uh, to be deceived by a lie will actually devastate us. Uh, in 1978, uh, 909 people had believed with all their hearts, that Jim Jones was a figure they could entrust their lives and their future destinies to. And if you remember the news at that time, uh, Jim Jones uh, had established this Jonestown cult. And ultimately, uh, in Guyana, he called all 909 people to commit suicide by drinking cyanide. They believed something which wasn't true. They put their trust in somebody who was not to be trusted, And they paid the ultimate price with their lives. But the evidence points to Jesus being one we can put our trust in. He is the most worthy object of our trust. If you know anything of uh, C.S. Lewis's conversion, C.S. Lewis, of course, was um, a great Christian man from the last century, now with the Lord. Uh, A great mind, uh, an Oxford don, uh, a great Christian writer. But he um, recounts when he came to faith Uh, as an adult, uh, and that was a process whereby he looked into the evidence. And there came a point where he could not deny the evidence and the force of the evidence. And to quote him, he said, I was the most reluctant convert in all of Christendom. In effect, he's saying, I couldn't deny the evidence. Here's a very intelligent man. He looked into it and he says, I'm being dragged into the kingdom by the scruff of my neck. I cannot deny the evidence. I'm the most reluctant convert in all of Christendom. He was compelled by the evidence. So, trusting in Jesus, it involves weighing up with the evidence. But of course, once we've weighed up the evidence, then there comes the point where we have to make a decision based on the evidence we have. How will we respond to Jesus? And it's at that point that we take the step of faith. So, Christian faith, Uh, it is a reasoned belief based on the evidence. 
Uh, it is not, as Dawkins would say, a leap in the dark. Uh, it is a step of faith, but it isn't a leap in the dark. It arises out of a conviction based on the evidence. It's interesting when you think about uh, the position of atheists, and we can take, of course, the new atheists, this um, modern, very vocal movement, because their position actually involves a step of faith in itself. Uh, to be an atheist, uh, to reject the existence of God, requires a step of faith. You see, Richard Dawkins would have us believe that uh, science and atheism are over here, uh, and they go hand in hand, uh, but that is not the case. Uh, to be 100% confident that God does not exist, uh, that would require testing and eliminating every possibility, and that is not possible. So, to not believe that God exists actually is a step of faith in itself because you can never fully verify that that is the case. And the absence of God is no more provable by scientific method than his existence. It's not the case that science and atheism are over here and Christian faith is over here. So you could put it like this. You can either take a, a step of faith forward to embrace Christianity or a step of faith backwards to embrace atheism. Both involve a step of faith. So some questions to consider in relation to uh, various areas of doubt. And this is where uh, we're just going to think practically for a minute. Uh, if we are working through basic doubts about whether Christianity is true and whether we're going to commit to it, we always need to keep in mind the question, do I have enough reason to believe? Uh, when the first... When the news first reached, reached those disciples uh, of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, of course, Thomas was not there when the risen Lord Jesus appeared to them. And he, of course, said, unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hand, I will not believe. But then, of course, he finally comes face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he believes. Yet, he already had enough reason to believe why could he have enough reason to believe? He had the testimony of those other disciples. Would they really lie to him? They were reliable eyewitnesses. And that is why Jesus commends those of future generations who believe on the basis of the eyewitness testimonies. In other words, the Gospels, without actually seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John 20, verse 29. Jesus says this to Thomas. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet and have believed. So, Thomas had enough reason to believe. He had the eyewitness testimony of others. We also have enough reason to believe. And we just need to look into the evidence. That's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But there comes a point where we then say, I have enough reason and I now need to take that step of faith. I need to respond to it accordingly. So what we've been thinking about firstly is this whole area of philosophical doubts. Is it true? Uh, now let's move on to this second area of doubts, doctrinal doubt. Do I correctly understand the truth? 
And let's start to think of remedies for this sort of doubt. It's always helpful to remember this. Uh, we should, as Christians, seek to have a deepening understanding of the gospel. But at the same time, always remember that we are never going to have perfect knowledge in this life. So our Christian journey is about deepening our understanding, digging deeper on the gospel. And that is a wonderful journey to embark on, this deepening understanding. But we also need to remember at the same time, we are never going to have perfect knowledge in this life. We're never going to have all of our questions perfectly answered. Uh, the Bible acknowledges that uh, we're not going to comprehend everything uh, that there is to know about God in this life. Our brains just are not big enough. I'll speak for my own at least. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says this. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully now, known. Now in this life, do we see God's face in all its glory? No, it's a bit like looking in a dirty mirror, a poor reflection. We see it, but we see it in part. Now we know in part, but then when we stand before God, through our trust in Christ, we shall know God fully, even as we are fully known. And what a glorious day that will be. But the point is, we are not yet at that day. And it is unrealistic now to therefore expect to see everything as we will on that day. To expect to have all our loose ends tied up. To expect to have all our questions about God resolved. To understand all his workings and the way that he works out his purposes in our lives and our world. To ever think that we can get to the point of finally fully having resolved every doubt we ever had and the answer to every question, to every, uh, an answer to every question. So we need to remember that. Uh, we need to remember that not having perfect knowledge is not the same as having reliable knowledge. Uh, we have reliable knowledge in the Gospels, but... We're never going to have perfect knowledge. And that is a very, very liberating truth. It means this. It's okay not to have everything sewn up. It's okay to still have doubts. It's all right to still live with gaps in our understanding. We don't have perfect knowledge now. And we don't have to have it for our faith to be legitimate. Uh, in the words of the great 5th century the theologian Augustine, uh, faith seeks understanding, uh, but lives with attention. Uh, that's my addition. I just thought I'd help the great uh, mind of Augustine <coughs> clarify what he meant. Uh, faith seeks understanding, but it lives with attention. So faith says, hey, I don't fully understand this aspect about God or his workings in my life or in the world. I don't fully understand this area of the Christian faith, but I'm going to seek a deeper understanding. I'm going to seek a deeper level. But of course, we live with the tension, and that is quite legitimate. And that is how faith operates. It seeks a deeper level of understanding. So as we close, uh, let's move on to consider uh, practically some ways of dealing with doubts. Uh, and we're getting very practical now. 
And the first is this. It is vitally important that we confront our doubts and we address them. Uh, It's vitally important that we don't brush our doubts, either philosophical or doctrinal, under the carpets and ignore them because that is a very destructive thing to do. Uh, We need to confront them and we need to work them through. Otherwise, um, I don't know if you've ever seen white ants, but they are the, uh, the terror and the nightmare of every property owner, especially if you hold a, have a property with any timber in it or any substance, because they eat everything. And they leave nothing but uh, a tottering frame, which is due to collapse. And that can be what doubt is like if we leave it unaddressed. It can white ant our Christian faith. Uh, to ignore it, is destructive, it is dangerous. So we need to be active, uh, not passive. And we need to confront our doubts, we need to work through arguments that are advanced against our faith, and to strengthen our faith. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says this, uh, we demolish arguments and every pretensions that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. Yeah, we will have people who will mount arguments against our Christian faith, uh, which will deny what we believe to be true, but we can engage with them, and ultimately we can demolish them. But we need to be active, not passive. So that's the first practical step. Uh, secondly, uh, we need to identify the issue or the question. Uh, so we see in the Psalms, the psalmist often almost interrogating his soul, asking himself as to what is going on in his heart. Uh, What is the doubt that resides there that needs to be addressed? Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And that's what we need to do. We need to interrogate our hearts. Why am I downcast? Why am I so disturbed? What is it that is eating away in my heart that I need to address? What is the issue? Do we doubt that Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, Do we doubt that the Bible is reliable? Do we have personal doubts about our forgiveness of sins due to a recurring sin? So we need to identify the issues at work in our hearts, uh, which then comes on to the next practical way of dealing with doubt, and that is refocusing on Jesus and trusting afresh in him. Uh, I helped lead uh, Christianity Explored groups in London uh, with a co-leader, Martha. And uh, the benefit of having a co-leader is that when these people who come inquiring about the Christian faith pose questions to you, you've got a bit of time to think. Uh, There's two brains rather than just one. And sometimes, you know, questions can come at you and you just need a bit of time to think. And uh, we were in one particular uh, Christianity Explored group and uh, we got to the question time. And uh, one of the people who were investigating the Christian faith said this, do you ever have doubts in your Christian faith? And if so, how do you deal with them? Well, I was sort of scrambling around. My mind was in a very different place. And so I was thinking, oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. As I was gathering together something to say, Martha came out with this amazing statement. She said, I do have doubts, but when I do, I go back to Jesus. And there it is. That is such a beautifully pithy and 
appropriate answer. I do have doubts, but when I do, I go back to Jesus. And when we have doubts, we go back to Jesus and we can ask those questions. Is he a worthy object of my doubt? Can I really trust him? I do have my doubts, but when I do, I go back to Jesus. I remember when I was at Moore College, uh, the Anglican Training College in Newtown, and uh, one of the lecturers um, in the Old Testament uh, shared with me that, um, oh, shared with the whole class, in fact, uh, that he sometimes had doubts in the reliability of the Old Testament documents. Uh, but he also then explained how he had come to renewed confidence in them. And he said, the answer is actually Jesus. And he explained this. He goes, he says, can I trust Jesus and his word? Yes, I can. Uh, what was Jesus' view of the Old Testament? Did he see it as God's inspired word? Yes, he did. Did Jesus trust in the Old Testament? Yes, he did. And on that basis, he could have a renewed confidence in the Old Testament documents. A fourth practical area uh, and a remedy for dealing with doubts. And that is uh, the blessing of community. Uh, working through our doubts in community with others. To try and work through our doubts on our own, in isolation, is in a sense choosing the harder path. Because God has blessed us with community. And it is within the context of community that we can help each other to learn and to grow and to work through doubts. Uh, so that certainly uh, applies to the sort of more distant community. So, for example, um, there are plenty of godly, intelligent, incredible Christian writers who have addressed the sort of um, the big doubt, big questions out there uh, and written on them, uh, responding to them. Uh, and so we can, if you like, stand on their shoulders. We can benefit from their insights to see how they tackle uh, the big questions which are thrown at Christianity. I remember reading... Uh, when I was at Theological College, a, um, a book by one of the new atheists called uh, Atheist Manifesto by a new atheist called Michael Onfray. And uh, it was a very disconcerting read because it was a subtle blend of partial truth which was then twisted to actually state something which wasn't true. And it was a very cleverly marshaled set of arguments to try and disprove the Christian faith. But it was taking a partial truth but then twisting it and making it say something which wasn't true. And for a young Christian to read that uh, on their own could be a very destructive uh, read. They could actually come to the point where they go, hey, maybe I have been deceived. Maybe this is all a load of bunkum. And therefore, uh, it's very helpful in that instance to read somebody who, a, a godly Christian writer who engages with, in this case, uh, the atheist manifesto. Uh, and there are uh, wonderful uh, writings out there in books uh, who in, which engage with people like uh, Michael Onfray, Richard Dawkins. Uh, I've plugged one of them on the outline. Um, Alistair McGrath uh, has written a book which is, has got a beautiful title because, uh, of course, Dawkins wrote The God Delusion. And his response to that is The Dawkins Delusion. It's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, but there you have it. Uh, Alistair McGrath responding to uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Uh, and that is a way which we can draw on this wider Christian community and learn from their, uh, in their expertise and their insights. But we also do it in the 
a more immediate sense of Christian community together. We can share our hearts with each other, with those we trust, those who can also then help us and give us insights on our struggles and help us on our journey. Just a few more quickly before we close. As we struggle practically with our doubts, we need to remember that what we're engaging in is not just an intellectual battle. It's not just an intellectual issue of the mind. It is actually a spiritual battle. And therefore, we need to engage in that battle using spiritual weapons. In other words, we need to pray. And prayer in the face of doubt is that vital spiritual weapon. We need to say to God, please help me as I seek to work through these doubts. Please help me to come to a surer and more solid and joyful trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the, the man who comes to Jesus whose son is suffering from fits and he's saying to Jesus, please help me. And Jesus says, well, do you believe? What does he say? Uh, he says in Mark 9, verse 24, pardon me, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. There it is. He's got enough faith to come to Jesus. He does believe, but he's assailed by doubts as well. But he, he has that, that prayer in effect, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And that's a vital piece of the weaponry in our spiritual battle with doubts. Praying to God, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Uh, two final ones then. Uh, we need to beware having a heart which becomes hardened and cynical. That is always the danger when we have doubts, that we allow our heart to get to the point where it becomes hardened and cynical. And we no longer sincerely seek the truth. Uh, Jesus warned his disciples against the, this sort of unbelief, which was very evident in the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, uh, because they resisted the clear implications of Jesus' miracles. Why? Because they didn't like what the miracles pointed to. Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the one who they should therefore worship and submit to. They weren't going to have a bar of it. And they hardened their hearts in disbelief and cynicism in face of the evidence. And in Mark 8, uh, verse 15, Jesus warns his disciples and his followers of every era to beware that same danger. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The yeast of unbelief. That small grain of unbelief which, if put into the dough of our lives, will work its effect through to an, a staggering degree. And that is the, the effect of unbelief which isn't addressed. It can spread like yeast through our souls. And finally, uh, the last practical way of dealing with doubt, which we'll look at this week, is through actually stepping forward in faith in the face of our doubts. Uh, I've got a good quotation here. I'm not sure who it's from, but it's a, it's a very helpful one. Uh, faith gathers strength from practice more than speculation. Uh, faith gathers strength from practice more than speculation. I think uh, the point it's making is this. It's a bit like when you're 
learning to ride a bike, if you can think back to when you went for the first time onto a two-wheeler, and uh, maybe your mum and dad have given you, you know, the theory about it, that, you know, as long as you continue in your forward motion, you're going to stay upright. But there comes a point where you need to put what you believe into practice. Uh, you need to move forward. You need to act. You need to set off down the hill and just pedal like fury and see what happens. And so likewise, uh, within the journey of life, uh, sometimes dealing with doubts can be a bit like that. Faith is like a muscle. And sometimes when we have doubts, um, there comes a point where we know enough and we need to move forward in faith. Uh, we need to take risks to trust God. And we need to put God's kingdom and seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first, even when it's potentially costly. And that then means that every day of our Christian life can become an adventure, the adventure of faith, where we step out, putting what we believe into practice, even though we don't have all our questions answered, we move forward in faith. Faith gathers strength from practice more than speculation. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've seen in your word today. Uh, we thank you that Christian faith uh, is not a leap in the dark. It's not trying to believe something we know ain't true. It's actually based in real historical events uh, which are testified to by eyewitnesses uh, and which we can believe to be true. And there are many different aspects of that evidence which support that fact that the death and resurrection of Christ are wonderful truths of history which change our future destiny and which give us a hope which means we will not be disappointed on that final day. Uh, as we continue to each continue on our journey of faith, as we seek to dig down deeper for understanding the basis for what we believe, uh, help us, we pray, to come to a deeper area of confidence and joy in the Christian faith. Uh, and to be able to lovingly assure others and to get alongside others who have their own doubts in the Christian faith and help them in that journey. So thank you for that wonderful work of the gospel and the sure and certain basis in which we know it to be true. Amen.